Hello and welcome to Demo Tape, the music podcast that's all about hitting rewind on the bands and scenes we love. I'm Rick Martin and this, my co-host, who's back from a trip to Egypt, is Sarah Jane Kemp. Hi, I'm back. It was touch and go at one point, Rick. I uh, had, a bit of a, had a bit of a nightmare on the River Nile. Right. <laughs> a bit of a, a boat crash. Um, but we're all still here to, to tell the tale. It was actually quite funny. My, um, my boyfriend was laughing at me because I was flapping around being all scared but basically essentially what happened is a cargo ship bumped into us and uh, um, our towboat that was tugging us along were kind of were separated from the towboat and we went wafting into the reeds in the side of the Nile and I thought oh my god like literally the, the scene from Titanic was going through my head and I was thinking mm. where's the wardrobe door but anyway yes I'm here I'm back to tell the tale and I've got some music news from there as well Okay, Egypt music news incoming. So yeah, Egypt. Um, well, I was there for a wedding. One of my really good friends um, was marrying an Egyptian. Um, so they flew everybody out. Well, we flew out to Cairo um, and it was overlooking the pyramids. It was one of the most insane uh, settings for a wedding I've ever seen in my entire life. Um, and as you would expect, there was traditional Egyptian um, celebrations going on. So after they got married, after the ceremony, a lot of uh, there's a lot of music that goes on in this um, in these ceremonies and it's music that I've never really heard before um, and very kind of interesting very upbeat lots of dancing going on the music the DJ played uh, was a real mixture most of it was kind of UK western music so I was dancing like an absolute loon my boyfriend said that I was dancing like a six-year-old who'd never heard music before, hmm. which I take as a compliment because I really was, I was pogoing around. It was quite um, a, quite a scene. I'm glad you weren't there to see it, anybody. Um, but they also, towards the end of the night, there was obviously a lot of Egyptian um, people there who were um, the groom's friends, and they played a few Egyptian songs. And I got my phone out. I was quite drunk at this point, so everything sounded good to me. But I got my phone out, and Shazam t- took a bit of a battering. Um, and they were. I've done a bit of digging on some of these songs. Because um, in my in my head, you have a stereotype of what Egyptian music sounds like, which is something like this, like stuff like that. <laughs> That's a big stereotype. I don't know if you should be saying that, Rick, but um, yes, I mean, a lot of it could sound like that. Um, But I I don't actually think it was all Egyptian. I think there's probably one or two that were Egyptian and a couple, it was basically songs sung in Arabic. Um, And one of the artists was a Lebanese, is a Lebanese singer, a female Lebanese singer called Maya Yazbek, um, and another Algerian artist called Khaled. And they were two really good songs. Um, but the one that was really interesting and funny was by an artist called Dalla Banat. And the song is called Oka. Don't know if I'm pronouncing that proper, properly at all. But it's essentially a cover of Ina Kamose, Here Comes the Hop Stepper. And it's sung in Arabic. And as soon as that came on, I just lost my absolute shite, basically. <laughs> because it was so brilliant. And I really urge anyone to go and listen to that. And, and everyone, all the Egyptians just went crazy and mad for it. It was really interesting to see. And there's another guy called Tamim Yunus. Um, I did try to do some digging on him. I don't know where he's from. But uh, Scoop Empire uh, called him one of the best and funniest artists in the Middle East. 
So never let it be said that on demo tapes we just talk about one type of music. We might lean towards the kind of Indian Britpop side of things, but uh, yeah, we've all gone. We've gone a bit Jules Holland here. This is like on Jules Holland where he introduces some band that you've never heard of from uh, you know from the Middle East or whatever, and usually they actually sound pretty good, pretty I love interesting. It. I this, it reminded me of the time on Oxford Street. I think I've talked about this in a previous podcast where someone, a group of uh, kids, came past and they were playing a song on an, on uh, Bluetooth speakers, and it happened to be an Eritrean musician, and I shazammed it because. I love the sound of it and I'd never have heard it otherwise so for me I was actually quite you know music's quite a powerful thing I love world music and um, that's why I like Giles Peterson but yeah so I'm I absolutely loved it and I'll, I've added them to my Spotify playlist but how about you Rick what have you been up to yeah so I've, I've been back in Blighty where it's been it's been throwing it down me rain uh, so what's been going with me um, what have I been up to so yeah I, I guess I've I've Something I was going to talk about. I've had a bit of an affliction over the last week. A bit of a, a bit of a strange thing going on in my head musically. Around, you know, you have an earworm, right? So an earworm is where you hear a song that you like and you can't stop thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. I have kind of an extension of that where, if say in a sentence someone was to to, to quote, uh, I don't know, a song lyric, someone was to say "Supersonic Speed" or something, automatically "Supersonic" starts playing in my head by Oasis, and this has been kind of a lifelong thing. But I've, it's gone even one step beyond this week, and I've just done it there, one step beyond. I'm thinking madness now, which is the songs have started appearing in my head that I'm not even sure I've even heard before. Subconscious though. Subconsciously. We've talked about this before, haven't we? Quite a lot, because it happens to me as well. I think we are slightly, I don't know what the right word to use is for this, but Odd. different from Odd. most people in that sense. And the song I've had in my head this week, and I, I would love to know where this came from, I'd also love to know from listeners whether this happens to them, is Sister Sledge is Lost in Music, Covered by the Fall. Now, they are two of probably the most diametrically different artists you can think of. You know, Sister Sledge, classic 70s disco, The Fall, classic kind of 70s punk. You know, Marquis Smith died a couple of years ago. And, I mean, when I, when I thought of it, I thought, I'm definitely aware that song exists. But when I then listened to it on Spotify, I am convinced I've never heard, I've never actually sat and listened that song before so I have no idea why why it's appeared oh, really? in my head oh that's interesting I wonder well subconsciously though you, something must have happened you will have heard that song before otherwise how would you know about it I've got an interesting one on that actually have you ever heard, heard it through the grapevine by the slits no but I mean that's exactly the sort of example yeah, of a song that could probably appear in my head brilliant. that I've never heard it's absolutely amazing you should go and listen to it uh, they've really done a good job on that when you're talking about juxtaposition that's kind of up there. And I've got a third example of that, which is Walk On By, but covered by The Stranglers. So may- maybe that one. So maybe it's that I've heard that, and then I've in my head I've subconsciously been thinking about punk bands covering kind of disco and soul and that sort of thing. I don't know. Back on kind of planet sort of normal, uh, the other thing I was going to talk about, I've been becoming obsessed with Angel Olsen and her new album, All Mirrors. One of those names, I think both of us are kind of heard and been aware of, and like there's, there's a few other artists called Angel, and certainly... A lot of Olsen's out there, but so maybe it's not her that I've heard. But yeah, it's her fourth album. Um, I guess the thing, the reason I really like it is it's it, it kind of touches on stuff that I've liked in previous years. You know, other kind of bands that I'm really into. So it's got a kind of slight beach house vibe to it. It got I think nine out of ten nearly on Pitchfork. That's where I found it. And I, I often read the Pitchfork reviews and try and keep up with what kind of the American indie kids are listening to. But yeah, just a, a really kind of affecting album I guess quite an emotionally affecting album so I recommend uh, listening to that if you haven't if you haven't heard it well we'll put a few songs on our Spotify playlist I guess won't we this week yeah we'll make sure we put a playlist out this week because we've already talked I think especially I want to hear your Egyptian yeah, yeah, yeah. your Egyptian well some of tunes. them aren't on Spotify one or two of them aren't on Spotify but I'll put the ones that are on Spotify on for sure or if, if you can find if we can find YouTube links we can put them in the description oh, there's a SoundCloud, as well. the yeah. SoundCloud link 
Yeah. Can't say that word. SoundCloud link. Check the description, listeners, and you'll find all this great music there to listen to. Yeah, so we haven't really talked about what we're actually here to talk about today, have we? It's going to be a bit of a shorter episode of us talking today because we've got quite a long interview of um, Rick went to interview um, Tom from The Enemy, didn't you, this week? Absolutely, yeah. And it's, it's one that I've been tra- sort of trying to get in the bag um, for a while. And someone I've got... I guess a bit of a shared history with if you know if you rewind back to kind of the episode one of demo tapes and I talked about kind of following the Arctic Monkeys around for a bit I sort of did the same with the enemy the difference being that I didn't mess up any of their PlayStation games and they're quite happy to have me around but yeah um, they I guess that one of those bands I'll never forget because as a music journal the kind of pinnacle when you work on a magazine like enemy is to get a cover feature it's the thing that you Certainly I strived for from kind of the day that I started writing for Enemy and it took me five years to get one and it was with uh, this band The Enemy and the reason it was even more memorable is the day that that was published was the same day I got my degree in journalism so it's a little bit like I woke up that day and thought I'm not actually sure which thing I'm looking forward to more getting my degree certificate for three years work or basically graduating in Enemy in terms of graduating to the cover. before you even got the degree so I'm not surprised you weren't that excited about the degree to be honest. So yeah it was, it was good to kind of reminisce with with Tom about some of that stuff and kind of yeah hear, hear a little bit more about the background of, of the band you know he's one of those um, they're one of those bands that definitely burned kind of really brightly with a you know multi-platinum album and number a number one album but burned quite briefly and you know and he's he's you know, previously in interviews, he's one of those people who didn't pull any punches, and he certainly doesn't pull any punches on this. In being quite honest about their kind of career trajectory, and and some quite, and you know, I won't spoil it, but some quite heartfelt stuff um, as well. As, you know, things about him personally that he sort of, I guess, wanted to get off his chest and 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 talk to us about. And then there's a little bit also on kind of the future for him um, as a solo artist and whether the enemy will will come back. But yeah, we're going to play. This is a slightly longer interview. You know, normally we. we we, you know, Sarah and I go off and do interviews with artists, and we can get it down to maybe half an hour, or you know, we cut it into two parts. But for me, this works best as as kind of a standalone uh, interview that runs a little bit longer than than they normally would on episodes. But you hope we hope you stick with us. We'll be checking those uh, iTunes stats to make sure that you stay and and listen to, to the, this is well, entirety because well, it's worth it. Yeah. Well, the beauty is you you don't have to listen to it all at once, do you? So you could listen to it on your commute to work and on your way home. It kind of picks up from where you left off. So without further ado, let's go into it yeah so this is uh, an interview with tom clark recorded earlier this week in his house of all of all places near coventry yeah so i'm here with uh tom clark uh tom clark's dining table um in fact and uh yeah i think if you're going to make an album called we'll live and die in these towns you've probably got to still live in the, in that town and we are sort of in coventry that's the line that you said would have worked better if i still lived in coventry <laughs> <laughs> yeah well we're sort of i mean we're about we're about four miles out of the city centre I think that still counts, yeah. and uh, I think that's probably sort of a nice segue into where I kind of want to start this this chat, which is um, with your debut album, We'll Live and Die in These Towns. I kind of want to re- rewind a little bit further back than that in terms of um, kind of the way the band came together, and, and almost, I think, maybe set straight some of the stories about what you were doing before the band, because I've heard about a million different versions, some you've given to me, some that you know other, I've read in kind of other interviews that you've done, things like... Um, you know, that you were cleaning toilets in a shoe shop and that the members of the band sold tellies for the co-op um, and even that you and Liam were in a kind of touring jazz band or, or something kind of close to that. So what, what's the real... What, what were you really up to before, before the enemy came to be? 
So I don't think any of us ever clean toilets in a shoe shop. I did clean toilets in a TV shop where I worked, but that was everyone did that. You know, even the manager of the toilet needed cleaning. It's no one's uh, above cleaning toilets. But what we were actually, I mean, what a lot of people don't know is that. So we we always looked really young, and our manager at the time said, "People aren't going to believe that you're 20, so I'm just going to say you're 18." And it, It'll buy you a couple of years towards the end of your career anyway. I think, I think it was quite a common thing. But we went with it because he was a manager and we were not. And um, so there's two years that are lost there to account for. And it's actually how the three of us met, which is we all went to music college and we all failed music. Okay. <laughs> um, which no one, you know, we never really said that. Um, but we, we all met at music college. Um, I barely scraped in I didn't have didn't have enough GCSEs to get in um, I got in by playing piano and a bunch of other stuff and just going look this is what I'm good at I'm not good at maths and I don't have a qualification in it can mm. I still do music course and and I met I'd, I'd moved house as well because I grew up in Birmingham and sort of moved over this way when I was 16 which is quite a traumatic time to move house because you, you know the friends you've had for 16 years are gone and you start in college which is terrifying you don't know anyone and I met Andy who was just a really nice guy and he, he just he basically just went here's all my friends have them mm. which was a, a an unbelievably generous and kind thing to to do and so I made friends with Andy and at the same time me and Liam bonded over Oasis um, Liam was and probably is a huge Oasis fan um, he's, I've heard him say before that he, he had all the Oasis lyrics from the first album written on his pencil case at school mm. which I believe um, but Liam heard that I was I liked Oasis as well and he sort of went oh heard you, heard you like Oasis and said, yeah they're alright and we got talking music and we were sort of just mates and then I heard him drum and Liam's like the drumming that you heard Liam do in The Enemy is him basically just taking a stroll with his eyes closed. He's mm. such a technically proficient drummer. And he's the third generation of drummer in his family. His dad was a great drummer and his granddad was um, a drummer in a pipe band, which is really technical sort of snare work. So Liam was an awesome drummer. And at the time, I was sort of, when you're 16, you're sort of discovering music. I discovered Led Zepp 2 around that time and I loved the Rolling Stones already and... I started going down this real sort of blues route. So I loved bluesy stuff. Liam was, Liam really liked sort of jazz fusion stuff like Bill Bruford, who if you listen to Bill Bruford, I don't know if you know Bill Bruford, hardly anyone does, but it's bizarre stuff. It's almost unlistenable. Mm. Um, really technically amazing. Um, and Liam used to go to workshops and watch him play live. And, you know, he was just a massive geek about drums and, but he also loved Zappa. Liam introduced me to Frank Zappa and and a, a bunch of sort of more progressive stuff too. And so we, me and Liam ended up playing what I guess you'd call sort of jazz blues fusion. Um, and there was another guy, Steve, who we played bass with, who was also on, just on the same music course. I think he might have passed. I don't know. Okay, so that's, a, so that's why passed. he didn't get in the enemy. <laughs> And were you playing guitar in this band? Were you playing piano? What, what was the setup? So I played guitar, but I, I never used to sing um, initially. Um, Liam's drumming is what made me sing because 
I realised that there was no one else around who was going to sing. And I just thought, Liam's too good a drummer to not form a band. And we need a singer for a band. So I'm going to have to just sing. Um, and so I started singing. And the, when, I, when I was doing that with the blue stuff, I had a really sort of quite a, a harsh gravelly because I you know I didn't know how to sing and it, it was all sort of from the throat and really raw and not a, not a good way to sing um but we, we just we just did that for a bit with me sort of singing the odd line here and there and I, I, people liked it I think we I think we won a, a local competition to play at Godiva Festival and which is a free festival in Carvin we we had quite a, a reasonable reputation amongst the, the local touring bands. We never really did anything more than that because there were no songs. It was mm. it was just technically very good stuff and other bands would watch you and go, oh, wow, they can play. But there were no songs there. And we used to... Me and Andy used to, to sort of go out drinking most nights after work. So after we all failed music anyway, we, we then went and got jobs and... Andy worked in a, a shop where he sold sort of a mixture between houseware stuff and and TVs. And I worked in I worked for the co-op selling electrical goods, um, which was mostly TVs and washing machines. Um, and so me and Andy used to go for drinks after work, and even we worked at different places. We just meet up, we just stay mates. And uh, one day I, I sort of said to him, I'm thinking of trying to write some songs that people like mm. you know ones that stay the same where we don't change it every time we play it and and uh, he was like yeah I think that would be a good idea and and we uh, we went over to Liam's house the three of us and just had a chat with Liam and ran it past him and went thinking of writing some stuff that I mean the word is commercial but we didn't you know that wasn't our vocabulary at the time but we were basically saying let's write some commercially some more commercially viable songs or at least some more more sort of typical songs than structured I yeah think, exactly that's what you're doing yeah. totally yeah and Liam was up for it Andy wasn't invited at this point Andy had just come over to Liam's with me he wasn't sort of it wasn't should the three of us do this but then I wrote I think the first two songs I wrote were Technodancephobic which uh, as I said to you the other day, is it's time to burn by storm, which is. This just cracked me up when you told yeah, me that because it's, it's, it's so obvious now you tell me that, but you would never in a million years listen to that unless there's some musicologists who listen to this podcast who can say they picked that up straight away. It fits perfectly, but I would never have. I would never have made that link. Yeah, you can literally sing technodancephobic over its time, but it's three notes. I just took those three notes. It's the laziest lifting of a song ever. <laughs> <laughs> It's not even heavy lifting. It's just three notes. What if their publishers are listening to this? And they... Well, they won't bugger, aren't they? But no, I think you need eight notes. So it's kind of, <laughs> if you want to protect yourself, you've got to write a song with more than three notes. <laughs> <laughs> so we, um, so yeah, we, I wrote Technodancephobic. I can't remember whether I wrote the lyrics or I just had the top line and the, and the you know, and the It's Time to Burn bit. And then I think I also wrote 40 Days and 40 Nights. And I'm pretty sure I had the lyrics for that, and that was a fairly fully formed song. And I think at the time, Steve was already thinking about moving away. I think he moved down to Brighton. Um, but either way, I, th I think he... Uh, I don't... I might be wrong here, but I'm fairly certain we played 
those two songs to him and he wasn't really feeling it and the so the band as, as it was then sort of just broke up so me and Liam have got these two songs and and Andy's sort of knocking around and Andy played bass in um, in a sort of a, a pop punk band that he'd been playing bass in for years and I can sort of see that. I mean, he would have had the hair in those days. Oh yeah, you know, totally. for that for that side of things, wouldn't he? He loved it. He like Blink One Eight Two and the Starting Line and stuff like that was that was what he was into. And um, and so we sort of said, "Oh, just come and play bass," you know, until we got a bass player, it was, which is the most unkind, rude <laughs> thing you can say to anyone. <laughs> but we we're like, you know, look, we obviously we're ridiculously technically proficient, and you're in a band that plays Blink-182 covers, but just come and fill in for a bit. But immediately it was obvious that even though he wasn't as, you know, as as technically capable as me and Liam, he brought something to the band that was... I mean, it, it wasn't a, a... It wasn't like we identified this and went, oh, yeah, we'll need this. But it obviously was probably key to the band's working um but he just was really fun to be around and and, and just such a good sort of positive energy and i mean Liam we were quite serious i was especially serious when it came to music because you know it's, it's got to be done it's got to be done the right way and mm. and and so he just he brought this element of fun to it and i think he brought some of that pop punk with him as well so then the next few songs we wrote were It's Not Okay To Be A Slave, um, at which I'll always remember as I was writing the lyrics to that. We used to just write in the rehearsal room. We'd just play a bit and I'd go, all right, let me think of the lyrics. And then we'd, I'd sing it and that'd be it. it was, that was how we wrote it. And I remember writing the lyrics to that and Andy going, oh, that's harsh. He's like, why have you been so harsh on mm-hmm. <laughs> like the, the Little, the little did he know the album was about to follow. <laughs> yeah. But he, he was just concerned for the characters in the story, you know, like, but... It, but he, so we, we got a, maybe three or four songs together, I guess. Um, and it was fun. We used to just go into the rehearsal room on a Tuesday night, write some songs, and and go out. And we hadn't we hadn't even played a gig. We just used to go and write songs and play, and that's what we were enjoying doing. And Liam ended up temping for FedEx. So that's what Liam was doing while me and Andy were working in the shop. And he ends up sat next to a woman called Jane, um, who later appears in Happy Birthday, Jane. Okay, yeah, I thought that might have been the link. And Jane, um, her son is a guy called John Dawkins, who works for a management company in London who managed a band called, called Boy Kill Boy. And when we were sort of still in the blues band, just after we'd failed music and we'd just started work, Liam... Um, the story goes, and I assume it's true, the story goes Liam nicked John's email address off her computer. That's the story um, you gave me uh, 12 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've, got, I've got that written that's, here. That's the story Liam gave me, so if it's not true, you want to take it up with him. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so we basically sent John um, some, some of these bluesy demos. And the, the bluesy band was called, was called Bridges at the time. That's just the name we were going by because the rehearsal room was built into the arch under a bridge. And we had no imagination. Um, it's a good name for a band, Bridges. I'm surprised yeah, no one's right, yeah. no one's come up with that before. Maybe they have. I'm going to Google this when I, yeah. <laughs> once we finish recording. And so 
John listened to it and went, yeah, you, you're great musicians, but there's no songs. And so when we'd written these songs, Liam sent him some phone recordings and like phones weren't smartphones back then, you know, so God, God knows what the quality mm. was, but... You're talking um, the days of Nokia and, and yeah, playing exactly, Snake and yeah. stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So we've, we've somehow recorded this on a phone and, and Liam sent them to Dawkins and Dawkins liked it and said, send me some more. So we started writing some more and... And that was kind of the, the beginnings of how the band got, how it was formed and how it appeared on the radar of the music industry. And in terms of, I guess, you know, coming through in the kind of Midlands and Coventry music scene, was it a curse or a blessing, I guess, to be based in a city where on the one hand, um, the spotlight wasn't there particularly, you know, there hadn't really been a spotlight in Coventry since the specials, really. I know there'd been kind of a few things in between them, but nothing that had gone number one album platinum selling or was it kind of a curse in the sense that it was hard to break out of that because there was no one watching whereas if you come through in Manchester or Sheffield or London London's a different kettle of fish actually London is easy to fall under the radar there because there's so much was it a curse or a blessing to come through in a in a scene like that it's sort of neither because in our naivety we weren't trying to break through we weren't trying to be a successful band I'd, I'd just been promoted to deputy manager of the co-op electrical store and this was just our thing that we did on a Tuesday night and mm. there was it was we'll write these commercial songs but I think our view was so that when we're playing in these pubs people enjoy singing it more than just the random blue stuff we were playing mm. but I don't think I don't think any of us I can't speak for all of us but certainly I didn't think this would be a shrewd move and we might get picked up and we might get signed that wasn't why I was doing it it was more just genuinely to go and let off some steam on a Tuesday night and you know it, it was it was a luxury it was eight quid an hour for a rehearsal room and it was like well that's what I want to spend my money on it wasn't an investment it was just it's how I want to spend my time and so I don't think we ever considered what the music scene in like what the music scene was like in Coventry and what our prospects of getting picked up were obviously Liam must have had some sort of ambition there because he sent the stuff to to John um, and then once John sort of expressed an interest and gone yeah this is quite good I guess then my ears pricked up and I thought all oh, right okay well it's, you know that's good that there's maybe a, a possibility that this will go somewhere but even then I don't think I had any idea where it would go I, even at the point where it, further down the line when John said you've got to quit your jobs now We've got a massive record deal lined up with Warner Brothers. I remember having a really concerned conversation with him going, it it took me a lot of interviews to get this job and I've been promoted and mm. it, it's a sure thing. It's This is a steady job and he doesn't pay loads, but there's a there's a route to... Store manager. Of, yeah. I, I mean, literally the lyrics to Away From Here are sort of me wrestling with that and going, what do I want? Do I want, you know, if I'm maybe three ranks away from getting a, a Mondeo paid for by the co-op and, you know... Company car. Exactly. And it was literally the... That was me wrestling between the name badge that I put on every day and going, this is good, honest work. And John sort of going, but there's a record deal on the table. And it, mm. in John's world, all he dealt with was new bands and every single one of them wanted a record deal. But... I don't know, I was kind of, I was a bit more cautious. I, I was like, well, I don't really know what that means. You know, um, it, it, like, you've got to promise me this is going to go somewhere if I'm going to quit my job, because, you know, 
I'm not going to get another one in the current climate. It was... In 2007, yeah, exactly. we were in the midst of recession. Yeah, exactly. And it particularly, I don't even know if it had hit London yet, but in the in the Midlands, there were already, before the TV started talking about recession, there were already no jobs. I've just failed music, but I remember going to uh, a store called Stone the Crows that sold furniture downstairs and saw novelty penis items upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> just like joke stuff. And I remember turning up there in a, you know, a freshly ironed shirt and a tie and... You know, going, look, here's who I am. I've, I've just come out of college and all right, I, I failed the, the music course, but you can see my attendance record was good. And and, uh, and I'm just going, uh, like, we, I mean, it was, it was I wasn't just showing up, it was an interview. They were advertising for the job, and you know, and, and they were just like, no, we're, you're all right. And I must have done 30 interviews like that for rubbish jobs that I didn't want to do. But, he, you know, and then I got that that job at the co-op, I felt ridiculously lucky because I felt like they'd taken a punt on me and so I, I grafted in that job. Mm. But I guess when, when you explain it like this, it's probably not hard to understand why this this was the stuff that you poured into your lyrics because I guess, again, the ly- lyricists, there's usually one or two ways you can go. I guess at the time there were a lot of bands who were pouring, you know, you think about Arctic Monkeys being the classic example of, of you know, social commentary, I guess you could call it, or you have bands who do pure escapism, you know, who don't write about the everyday. But I guess, was that, how conscious was that decision that, that actually these frustrations I've felt with, you know, interviewing for 30 jobs before I finally get in at the co-op and actually I'm quite happy selling TVs to a point. How, how, how natural was that that you started including that in your lyrics and that became kind of your flag in the sand almost is what your band stood for? So initially it wasn't a decision. It wasn't that I consciously decided, oh, I'm going to sing about my life and what's going on in front of me. It's just that as a 20-year-old, you don't have much life experience, and so you can only really think about the things that you know. You don't know that much, so you think about what's going on at, you know, in your life at the time. But I do think that by the time we were in meetings with Warner Brothers and big labels and publishers, and we'd understood that there was some value to what we were doing, um, I remember someone asking me to explain what's the difference between the enemy and the Arctic Monkeys in terms of your social commentary. And I remember saying at the time that, and I loved that first Arctic Monkeys record, which was the only one that was out at the time, and I remember saying that that record is a social commentary on everybody I know's weekend, Mm. and my record is a social commentary on everybody I know's weekday, and that's the difference. Mm. And it's, I mean... My weekends obviously weren't as exciting as the Arctic Monkeys because <laughs> otherwise I would have maybe sort of fallen naturally towards writing about that. But I, I don't know, maybe I was just a bit more boring. I tended to just go up to the local pub and drink Guinness as a 20-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, the, what you know, what was the real thing was the, the struggle of everything I just said, really, you know, getting a job, keeping a job and and then trying to progress in that job because there was no way that... You know, on a, I don't even know if it was, I don't, I don't know how sales jobs worked then, if it was the sort of the, the zero hours contract of its day, but I'm not even sure we were on minimum wage. I think it was topped up to be minimum wage based on your commission. Yeah, so you, you, know, yeah. you had to get good at it and you had to be able to sell and be knowledgeable and, and tell you pretty much everything about washing machines still. <laughs> <laughs> and tell us. Yeah. <laughs> and then from there, you obviously release kind of your first cohort of singles. But I think for me... Obviously, I was working at NME at the time. The first I really started to notice you was was the live kind of side of things and how quickly you were going through the venues. Is that is that kind of how 
you saw it from your side that on the live side it did seem to accelerate quite quickly. Yeah, I didn't give it much thought other than these gigs are getting easier because people are into us before we even get there now, whereas you used to have to really work for it. You know, our first gigs that we did, our first gig that we did actually was a bit of a bit of a sort of a, a wet sort of nothing. It was we hadn't done any gigs, but management John Dawkins. Um, the company you worked for had taken us on and represented us and they said you need to do some gigs because you haven't done any and you know you got all these songs but you got to go out and play them and build up a following and they said where do you want to play and our local the big local venue at the time was the Casbah and we said well we'd love to play there and they put us on in the side room which is about 200 cap and um, it was pretty much empty but we didn't care and we went on stage it's the first time I saw Andy go nuts on stage because I'd only ever seen him in a rehearsal room but the minute we got on stage and started playing, he started jumping around. And I, I remember mm. thinking, what is he doing? Rocking the Casbah, right? And, and we, so the first gig was, but that was really just for management to come up and see that we could also do this live. And they obviously decided we could. But then the next gig was when the work really started because management, I think, had just hired that venue and gone, let's put them on and see what they can do. And, and then the next gigs were in a pub called The Hope and Anchor in Coventry, which has been demolished now. Um, and we rocked up there and, and the football was on. So we weren't very popular bringing in a bunch of sort of musical instruments in and trying to set up in front of the screen. And mm. and no one there, it wasn't a music pub. They never had gigs there. And it was, there was no stage, it was just carpet. And we set up there and we had to work so hard to win those people over. You know, we had to play the best we had ever played. And after about... After playing there for about three times, we'd won them. We'd won the locals over from the seven-year-old bloke sat next to the fruit machine in the corner to the young lad working behind the bar. And and there was literally a queue around the corner by the third gig, which was just bizarre at the time. I didn't really take it in. I also don't know how much work management had been doing behind the scenes to promote that gig, if it was word of mouth that we were a good band and people were coming, yeah. or if there was stuff going on behind the scenes to sort of build our confidence, I don't really know. But we, you know, though it did grow quickly because from then on it, so Warners came to like our third ever gig. I think Be Unique, who just signed the Kaiser Chiefs, came to the second, but we haven't got a clue who Be Unique was. So they introduced themselves as, hi, we're Be Unique, and we basically went good for you. Hmm. Like, we've got to play a gig, like, we can't really talk. But again, not being in a music industry driven city you're probably not going to have heard of those labels are no you? exactly it's like I mean you've heard of Warners because they come up on the start of films but, oh yeah exactly know, yeah but, Bugs Bunny and stuff yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so yeah it was, and also I'm kind of a I'm quite a sceptical person so even when Warners were there I mean Warners really they watched the gig and they were so enthusiastic straight away you know they were kind of jumping up and down going this is going to be massive you like guarantee this is going to be a top 10 hit and I was thinking, yeah, 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 all right, maybe, you know. But I, I was also thinking, I mean, I, I look back now and it's like those people, they, you know, they were from the American Wing of Warners who'd been brought over to run the UK. I mean, they really knew what they were doing. And so they'd obviously seen it and gone, yeah, that's a hit. But from my point of view, I was just thinking, how could it possibly, how can you be so sure? We're in the Hope and Anchor in Coventry. We're on our mm. third gig. Mm. Are you nuts? It was interesting you talking about kind of the themes of the songs. So I want to kind of fast forward to when I first met you guys, which was the week or maybe a couple of weeks before your album went to number one. 
Uh, I interviewed you in Glasgow for NME. I think you were doing like an in-store signing for probably away from here. Is my, well, is my was, guess. I can't. I can't remember if that interview was in an in-store. If it was because I remember doing an interview around that time in a horrible pub. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, because um, I've never quite forgiven your band for agreeing to meet me in a Glasgow Rangers football hooligan pub. <laughs> I mean, it was funny. It gave me something to write about, but. Uh, <laughs> It was almost like I thought you guys were messing with me in the sense of you arranged me to get there at like two or whatever and you turned up about half two, at which point I'd been having conversations with the guys in the pub. They're trying to sell me stuff. Some of it I wondered if it was just they were nicking it out of my bag and then trying to sell it, <laughs> trying to sell my own iPod back to me. Our, our tour manager at the time was a, a massive Rangers fan. And so I think it was probably just a case of we need somewhere to do this interview and that was probably... The pub he liked. <laughs> mm. But to me, it, it felt deliberate given, um, or if it wasn't, it was serendipity at least, that, mm. you know, the brief I was given, and obviously these briefs, um, you know, we were discussing this before, you know, some of it's, you, you have your own questions you want to ask a band, but you've also got the kind of line that your, your editors want to see. And it really was that because of the subject of your songs and the fact that you were political without being kind of... Um, sort of singing about Hugo Chavez in every song, but there was definitely kind of a snarl in there and, and like we say, the kind of commentary around what you were talking about, that really this piece was about positioning you as uh, the voice of your generation almost and you're the kind of the spokesperson for your generation and what was going on. And I mean, you definitely played to that kind of role. You know, we got what we, what we kind of came for in, in that sense. But was that a role that you, you kind of wanted to play? You know, you'd written those lyrics no. about what you'd known, but yet... So then you're going to get asked about that and you perform that role, but did it feel natural? No, it's, um, I, I think the, the press at the time needed, because there were so many bands, that every band almost had to justify their existence. You know, so what's, what, what sets you apart from the other million indie bands? And if the press sort of want to write about you, I guess they've got to find an angle. And if your press officer at the record label wants to get you in the press, I guess they've got to find an angle as well. But all of that was sort of going on in the background to us. You know, we those songs were written long before I'd met anyone whose job title was press officer. And it wasn't an attempt to be the voice of a generation, which I think other bands around the time probably tried to do. I think there were some artists who came out and kind of very much were... I want to be, you know, X, Y, Z, and I didn't, I didn't, like I say, I didn't even think the band would get signed. I was thinking, I want to write some songs that have got catchy choruses so that when we play them in the local pubs, people sing them. And the only thing I had to write about with my very limited life experience happened to be a commentary on my life. And, and so I never saw it as political either, that, at least on that first album. I, I think even now, I'd, I'd argue it isn't political, that you can take a political view of it but that it, it was just social and that it was quite innocent in its social commentary. It wasn't, you know, let's look at the, the social landscape around us and, and let's construct a, you know, let's, let's decide on an angle on that and construct a, a commentary around it. It was literally just, you know, what, what I was seeing around me, like literally down to the fight next to the fruit machine. And it, it, it wasn't contrived and it was probably why it worked. Um, but you did have a point of view. That was the thing I found that when I asked you about uh, kind of what was going on with the Labour government, what was going on with policy around youth unemployment, and um, what the government were going to do about that, and 
recession. I mean, you were a young guy. I was a young guy at the same time, to be fair. But you had you had a point of view on it, and you were happy to kind of share that. Whereas you talked about Arctic Monkeys before, a band who also did social commentary, but again, I say with some experience, did not enjoy interviews. Yeah, would have stonewalled every question that I probably asked you. So they might well have had a view, but because they didn't give interviews, you would never have found out what it was. I think most people have got a view, uh, even if their view is just, I'm not interested. You know, I don't care. I, but I come from, I do come from quite a political family. You know, we were, I, I was raised with an awareness for politics. Um, and, and when, you, when you're sort of 20 years old and going out into the big wide world and you find, oh, unemployment's a real thing and it affects me, then it, it, it's not an abstract concept anymore. And it's not, it, you know, it, it's not something that you, you sit around with your socialite friends and discuss the pros and cons of policy. It's just, unemployment's real, I can't get a job, loads of my mates can't get a job. You know, I never wanted to be on the dole and I've never been on the dole, but I, what the fuck am I going to do? Do you know what I mean? And that's, it, it's not, it, it's not that I, I had a view that I wished to get across. It's just that I had a view. And if you ask me about it, I'll, I'll happily share it. it was, you know, how I always felt. But at the same time, Andy was super frustrated because the, the press were asking, the interviews were becoming increasingly more and more political focused and, you know, we wrote this album about me, you know, working at the co-op. And all of a sudden the press want to know, what, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? What's the answer? It's like, I don't even know what the question is, let alone mm, the answer. Mm. And Andy could not have been less interested in politics or the social commentary aspect of it. What Andy loved was the massive choruses and watching people's hands go in the air. And it was a really frustrating time for him because he was just like, well, what about music? Mm. You know, why are we sat here talking about Tony Blair? I mean, this was the time of instigate debate and all that as well, wasn't it? Yeah. Where a number of bands, kind of spearheaded by John McClure, got kind of, you know... And I think, in a way, it was a good thing that bands had something... that were given a platform for something to say. On the other hand, I can understand the frustration if you are in it purely from a musical standpoint that you think that's getting overlooked. So nowadays, I can't decide. I, I, I can't decide whether politics has a place in music or not. I can't decide whether it has a place in any sort of civilised area of art or, you know, it's kind of, it's so divisive, particularly at the moment, um, that, I, I don't know, I, I can't be bothered with it. I mean, I'm still, I, I, you know, I, I still watch the news and I watch certain political channels on YouTube to see what both sides are saying. I'm quite interested in American politics and the mess that there is over there and how the how they come into terms with it without just entering into civil war. But at the same time, music on a Tuesday night when we were going to that rehearsal room was about an escape from all of that. It was the escape from unemployment. It was I mean we weren't unemployed, we were employed, but it was the it was the escape from the graft. And from the real harsh world, which is what politics governs and affects often in a negative way. And so when you mix politics with music intentionally, rather than it just being innocent social commentary, I think you sort of poison the escape of music in that respect. Because you can't, you know, I mean, I love Billy Bragg, but I think that there's, there's sometimes when you just think, no, I can't. I can't listen to something that's challenging right now. 
Mm. I want to just put something mm. on that soothes me and that takes me away from the escapism. Yeah, what, what it, exactly. Yeah, escapism. Yeah. And I think that there's a, there's a place for both, but my tolerance for political music, probably because of our deep involvement in it, by the time you get to the second album, really diminished and has never really returned. To be quite honest. Mm. And it's interesting you say that as well because I think what you know, but I want to come on to in a minute how you know the album went straight to number one first week number one and then ultimately went was it double platinum or platinum? Uh, I don't know. I think I've read both, but um, you know, on the other hand, I don't think it was that your listeners were looking for a political band. It was the choruses that hooked people in. I think some of the social commentary, you know, I think when you look at some of the crowds who came to the gigs, it was clearly resonating, but it was much more about the huge choruses, I think, that, that kind of drew people in. So I guess I want to kind of talk about, you know, when the album went to number one, you know, you weren't an overnight success, but you had got signed within three gigs, which is not the most unheard of thing ever, but at the same time, I mean, there are some bands who spend 10 years slogging away before they kind of get signed. So how how easy was it to kind of come to terms with being, you know, one minute, a kind of, a, you know, a band who were climbing the ladder to front pages of magazines, a number one album, Suddenly, kind of in the glare of the spotlight. Well, at one point you are waking up with a hangover, driving your Austin Metro literally to the co-op, and coming out after work to find it's been stolen. That's a true story. And no girl is even remotely interested in you because you're just you know another minimum wage lad who's 20 and has nothing about him because he's got no life experience and and the, the, you've got no prospect of ever owning a house or ever really having a serious investment in society or the world and then a few months later people who write papers want to talk to you and people are asking you to be on the TV programmes that are on in the background in the shop that you were selling TVs in a few weeks ago. That's quite an interesting juxtaposition to think about, isn't yeah. it? That you were essentially on the... Yeah, you could almost film a scene where you're selling the telly and then you're on it Yeah. To few, a few months later. And, 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 you know, money. I mean, we, we struggled for money and all of a sudden it was... We'd signed a record there with an advance and it, we were... I think we signed probably one of the last proper record deals before it all went 360 and when there was still okay money in, in signing a record deal and what was interesting and that a lot of people and probably I don't see I don't know whether the, the journalistic wing of the music industry knew this but we signed to Warners before anyone knew we were signed to Warners and so that the story the official story is we put 40 days and 40 nights and it's not okay out on stiff records, which we did. The old punk label. Yeah, and you know, and resurrected stiff records, which we we did. They hadn't released anything, and it was released on stiff records, but it was done so kind of under the assistance and guidance of Warner Brothers, who had basically said, "This is our band, but if we just release it on Warner's, that's maybe too mass market for people's palate, and we need to, you know." And it's quite a common thing that's done now. I don't know whether it was back then or not, but we were, you know, we. We put It's Not Okay on sale. We'd already had 40 days on sale and we did a thousand copies. We put It's Not Okay on sale and a thousand copies went like that and there was immediately a conversation in Warners where they said, 
we need to make some CDs, not just some vinyl, and we need to sell these, and you know, because it's moving, and it still wasn't chart eligible, so, so deliberately so as well. But I think, to be quite honest, if we'd have just released 40 Days on Warner Brothers, that one might have charted. It wouldn't have been the, you know, the smash of, oh, there's a number one album, and there's a number eight single, and a number four single. It, it would have maybe charted top 40 somewhere, and because people genuinely reacted well. Zane Lowe played it. So we were driving back from a, a rehearsal, and we still had jobs, in Andy's Fiesta, listening to Radio 1 when 40 Days came on the radio. We had no idea it was going to get played. Zane Lowe had obviously got it from someone in the management because he was genuinely one of the few people at radio who had his finger on the pulse and was interested in new music. And mm. and he played it, and people reacted really well. I mean, we, Did you have to pull the car over at this point? We'd sat outside my mum's house just listening and then listening to people texting in their reactions. And we, you know, subsequent albums, when you you knew you were going to get a spot play on Radio 1, you would have tweeted, although Twitter didn't exist back then, but you would have tweeted and you'd have texted all your friends to say, as soon as it's played, make sure you text in and say how good it is so the reaction looks great on radio. There was none of that because we didn't know he was going to play it. We were Mm. genuinely just Mm. driving home listening to his show. and, And it... But it took off in such a way that before people even realised it had taken off, we knew it had taken off because all of a sudden we had money in the bank and we were signed to Warners and no one knew. You know, and people were going, oh, it's cool, they're doing a... Like, they've they've managed to get a a single out with Stiff and we're thinking, we've signed a massive, great fucking record deal with Warner Brothers. (laughs) And, you know, we've got Warner Chapel and and EMI fighting over the publishing rights. It's like, you've got no idea what's coming. But it's... um, At that time, it got very real. Because it was like, oh right, this is our job and this is our life, and and it, it it did just change overnight. I don't think it's a particularly healthy way to go about a career in music. I would have much rather if I, if I could go back. Actually, if I could go back, I wouldn't change anything because it was brilliant and I had some of the best years of my life. But if I was advising somebody else, I would say take the ten years, trickle stuff out, grow organically. You know. Don't expect a, a number one on your first album. Build it up, and and maybe on your you know your sixth album, you have a number one that is a, a seminal moment for music, and you're such an established band that you've got a, a decade long career previously to fall back on when the hype of that dies down. Mm. Because what we experienced to a certain degree, and what I think almost all new bands experience now, is sort of a flash in the pan hit. And thankfully for us, it was quite a long one, and a. a a reasonably profitable one to the point where we we all got some houses out of it. You know, we all got to put a deposit down on a house and walked away with something. But for a lot of artists, particularly now, I think, where it's even more um, magnified, or whatever the word is, I, I think people are here today, and the people around them make just enough money to pay everyone's salaries, and then the artist doesn't really make anything, and then they're gone. And then there's mm. a new artist in place, and... That seems to be how the music industry functions, and I, I don't know how professional artists who make it their job to create music now. I don't know how they actually financially survive mm. because they're there for such a short amount of time, and the money isn't great. You know, there's not actually lots of money in making records anymore. The money in touring is okay still, um, but it's I, I don't know. It, we we kind of had the last last sort of hurrah of a time when the the label when the big labels and the big publishing houses were still big and relevant and had huge budget budgets and were staffed and we saw the end of it the first time i went to warner brothers offices i walked in and it was a 
like a flurry of activity and a sea of people all working on multiple projects and there were you know there's so many bands signed to them and by the end you'd go into Warner's offices and there'd be four people there mm, mm. and mirrors the shrinking of the music press to be fair very very similar boom and bust I think yeah I wanted to pick up on something you said there about you know you don't regret anything you've done but if you were to advise a band that kind of drip drip and build into a number one album because I guess thinking about you know your second album music for the people you know there's that classic cliche of you have your whole life to write a debut album and about three months to write your, your second album and did you know it still performed well chart wise still charted but at the same time you know i've read comments from back in the day then and kind of more things you said sort of recently where you know it sounded like it was an album made under a lot of pressure and that not that any of you really walked out completely happy with how it kind of ended up how, how do you reflect on it now a bit older, a bit wiser, in terms of what happened there between the you know the platinum selling debut that goes to number one. It's almost an impossible bar to then go and hit again. Very few bands hit the bar again. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can list on probably on one hand of the last ten years of bands who've managed to do that. You know, so how how do you reflect on that now? Um, it wasn't it wasn't a particularly happy time, and it was almost the opposite of the first album. The first album was made with nothing, tiny budget, and you know even. Away From Here was recorded in a rushed session in a, a relatively cheap Brixton studio with not a, a massive budget. And and then we get to sort of making music for the people. And I remember really clearly, I had a few songs that I was working on because when you're on tour, you're in soundcheck, you write a few songs and there were a couple knocking about. But nothing where I was kind of thinking, yeah, this is album worthy, you know. Maybe No Time For Tears, which... Warner's. I'd actually written No Time for Tears for the first album, and Warner's went, "No, no one will like it." Um, and that is overtly political as well, in the sense of the opening words of the morning after the revolution. Although I do know that some of it's about isn't it being chucked out of a yeah, bar that, as well? That yeah, juxtaposition of the yeah, commentary it's, with it's another one where you can view it as political, but it's completely. It's about a fight that I had with a bouncer, and then a shit copper who refused to pull some CCTV to nick him. Mm. <laughs> it's literally what happened. I turned up to a bar. And the bouncer said, no, you're not, I don't like the look of you. And I was like, oh, I, I, don't, I don't really care. And he sort of kicked off. And, but the bouncer kicked off with me and he he put me on the bonnet of a car because he's a bouncer and I was a matchstick. And uh, and I was like, well, I didn't raise a hand to you. I'm standing on a public street. You've just assaulted me. So let's get a whole bill down here. And all bill turned up and were useless as they very often are. Um, and I said, right, there's a camera up there. I'm completely sober at this point as well. He wasn't telling me, I'm literally just going out. Mm. And so in my sober mind, I'm going, right, it's your job to arrest people who assault people. There's a camera up there that will show him assaulting me while I'm standing there with my hands in my pockets. And he sort of took a deep breath and shrugged and I went, no, I'm not going to do that. So I went home and wrote a song about him. And a couple of coppers in the town that that he was working and have spoken to me since and said he wasn't a very good copper. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's um, we can look at that as a, a political commentary on, I don't know, what you could view it on anything, police brutality or authoritarianism or whatever it is, it, but it wasn't. It was me not getting into a bar, getting my ass tanned by a bouncer and meeting a useless copper. Mm. The whole song is, is about that. Um, it had completely different lyrics, because we wrote it whilst I was still at Rockfield where we were making All Live and Die in These Towns. Had totally different lyrics and they got scrapped and then I revived it. And I thought, yeah, I thought Warners have said this song's rubbish, but 
I really love the top line and I love the chorus and resurrected it and changed the lyrics after that fight and just thought the energy of that song really fits that that horrible night. And uh, and so yeah, it was kind of that that's how that's how that one was formed. But the rest of the songs on that album we we were touring. I remember the night, I remember the journey. We'd just played Brixton Academy. I think we might have headlined it, but it wasn't our gig. It was, I think it was an XFM gig or something. Okay, yeah. Um, but headlining or playing in Brixton Academy under any circumstances is pretty awe-inspiring. You know, we it's a huge stage and you look out at that massive sea of people. And we've probably done bigger gigs, but there's something really special about that place. A lot of bands say that, yeah. It, yeah, it's got a real sort of atmosphere and you really just it's a lovely stage to play and we came off stage and we packed down our now massive backline because various companies have been fighting to give us amps and and stuff like that and we you know packed down all this really expensive gear put it into a, a really plush splitter van which is like a mercedes minibus type thing converted sort of leather seats it was lovely and we drove to another studio in wales this time mono valley and we got there and then I had the new 1964 Lambretta that I'd just had reconditioned delivered to the studio so I'd have something to ride about on. And we had the brand new top of the range Mercedes E-Class that we'd just bought to get from A to B. Uh, dropped off at the studio as well and a bunch of... And then we the first first few days we nipped down to Denmark Street in London and bought a bunch of vintage guitars. And I went back to the studio and sort of sat there and thought, well, I haven't got any songs. Mm. And... Warners are sort of going, you've got three weeks in this studio. And I just remember thinking, why have they, or management, whichever one it was, why have they booked us into a studio when the album isn't written? Mm. And when are they expecting this to be done? Are they expecting this by the end of the session? And so everything was written in haste, because I just didn't know. I just thought, you know, what they're expecting me to write. And so... You said before that one of the songs was pretty much a photocopy of... Something on your debut album because that's probably all you had time. Well, that so that was do. done at the very end. That wasn't even done in Wales. So we, in Wales, and we also made the brilliantly stupid decision to try and record onto tape. Okay. <laughs> Which, when you're up against the clock, is ludicrously idiotic because all three of you need to play the track that you're trying to play right at the same time, <laughs> and then you go back and put overdubs on. But it's not like modern recording it was ridiculously hard and we're up against the clock and we got no songs so it was a stupid idea but it sounded great um so we we wrote a bunch of songs and because all the interviews at that time were political and there's this weight of expectation of well there's gonna have to be some serious social commentary here and that's what the label want because that's what's selling and that's what our unique selling point is and there's a lot of selling involved at this point where there never was before in the first album. And mm. we came out of those sessions with a 70% of an album and we booked another studio in London um, where we went to. And I was kind of quietly instructed, you need to write another Ad Enough because the album didn't have anything that was that sort of straightforward, primary colours, here's a... a, a blast it out anthem mm. so yeah I just ripped off Had Enough I just took the chords from Had Enough and rearranged them ever so slightly and wrote Be Somebody um, I'm glad I did because of what I'm doing next year because if I hadn't written Be Somebody I wouldn't be able to do the next project that I'm going to do which is the most exciting thing I think I've ever been involved in but I'm going to bring that up with you later now I know you've raised I, that okay. see what I can get out of you but at the time Be Somebody was written 
at least the music was written slightly against my will. It was fine. I'll give you a primary colour anthem that you can put on Radio One. Mm. But you know the the bits that were really interesting me like that album almost every song on it on it is half finished you know elephant song to me is a demo and it's about half of the tracks that i heard in my head when i wanted to finish it but we didn't have the time and i didn't have the experience i knew what i wanted to make but i didn't know how to make it and we had a, a mike crossy who produced it was brilliant you know he was so patient and so supportive of what were basically kids trying to make an album that bands like U2 didn't have that amount of pressure on an album until they were probably on number seven or something. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just a bit of a nightmare situation. And it came out and it did perform well in the charts, but to be honest, it, it could have been one note <laughs> and it would have performed well in the charts because we'll live and die in these, these towns have performed so well, everyone was obviously going to go and buy it. And, you know, it, it's kind of... There are people who love that album that still whenever I announce a gig, say, play more off that album. But mm. the honest truth is, I just don't like a lot of it. You must feel like you want to finish it. No. I, no, I, you I, want to go back to I it. I honestly want to, I, I want to take Last Goodbye off it, because I love that song. And I want to take No Time For Tears and Be Somebody, and I want to put the rest of it in a drawer and never open it or listen to it again. Mm. And I feel like at the time, kind of the, the mood in the press started to change. I think when, when you're not the new thing anymore, you know, I think you're there more to be shot at. And I say that as someone who perhaps wasn't firing the shots, but was certainly in the army that was, right? Other bands also, it, the, the mood seemed to change with other bands as well. You know, things like uh, the Horrors making that dig at the Enemy Awards. I mean, I'm a fan of that band, but I think that was unforgivable, what Farris said uh, when you won that Enemy Award, you know? I can forgive it. And I, I, Do you know what? There was... Um, so... For whatever, I don't know who pitched us against Horus. I don't know whether it was Enemy or whether it was two band managers having a drink in a bar one night. I don't know. But I think that they identified that that we were kind of polar opposites in terms of probably our background, our class and the sort of music we were making. And they weren't even on the radar. I hadn't heard their music and I doubt they'd heard ours because they probably weren't interested in listening to the sort of music we were making. But... There was a little bit of sort of back and forth, a few digs that was absolutely encouraged by by magazines like the NME because it gives them, a, you know, the blur oasis. And, you know, the journalists love nothing more than a good feud because it's great. You know, you get to be a, a war journalist for a bit. <laughs> yeah. But um, but we, we bumped into them at, I don't know if it was Leeds or Reading, and we kind of both went, there's a lot of shit in the press at the minute, but no hard feelings, you know, like fair play, you're doing what you're doing. And Faris said what he said. Which was the, a band that flies in the face of natural selections. It's something uh, like something that. Along those something lines, along yeah. those lines, yeah. Um, but to be fair on, on Faris, someone at NME had decided it would be a genius idea to get him, while there was this little sort of spat in the press, to give us our award, which is kind of like giving you an award and a slap in the face at the same time. Mm. And, and if you're Faris and you're a young lad too in a band and you've been putting that position where you've got to give your peers or you know your contemporaries an award what you're not getting one you've got to think of something to say to save face mm. and so mm. I don't blame him for it and 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 actually it kind of on the night I don't know if there's any footage of that I didn't even notice what he said because I was so wrapped up in the fact that I was getting an award <laughs> I mm. honestly didn't, mm. didn't even notice so I didn't even really reply I just thanked everyone up in the public gallery because they'd voted for it and um and then we went off and had some photos taken and it was, it was 
we got pissed. It was quite a nice night. Mm. Um, it's it, everything's blown out of proportion. I, I didn't really lose much sleep over Faris or those comments. Mm. And in actual fact, by the time we came to make our fourth album, we were referencing the album that the Horrors had just made as that fucking brilliant production, and we love what they're doing. And you know, we, we want to nick a little bit of that production. And it, yeah, yeah, you know, it, it was. It's really kind of blown up out of out of all proportion. Say so, you know you were twenty one, twenty two at the time. I mean, did you have to develop quite a thick skin quickly to deal with? Because you know the, the they weren't maybe knockout punches, but they were jabs. I felt like you were a band that were getting jabs. You know the Alex Zane thing, where there was that mis- that thing where he made a point of saying, "I'm not going to play the rest of your your record on, yeah, on the I radio didn't, show." I didn't give a shit. <laughs> I, kind of, I mean, uh, it's early on. I had a very thick skin for several reasons. One, I'd gone from being pretty poor to what felt like a lottery. I mean, I wasn't, but I felt like a lottery winner at the time. And so you couldn't really touch me because a year before, no bird wanted to look at me and all of a sudden I'm shagging a bunch of fit birds in London and everyone fucking loves you and you've got money and you can, and all your booze is free. And it's... It's amazing. So Alex saying, going, oh, I'm not going to play your records. Well, I don't listen to your fucking show and lots of other people are going to play the record. Mm. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I don't think it's going to slow down the momentum. But at the same time, you know, that was, um, that was just what happens when you put... That was the result of us going and playing... What was, the, was it Pop World, the show that he did? Yeah, yeah, it kind of came after Simon Amstel. Yeah, you know what I mean. So, so him and Alexa Chung were presenting Pop World, and our management and our record label wanting to sell as many records as possible, and said, "We want you to go on Pop World. You have to mime. Everyone does, and then there'll be an interview afterwards, and it'll be a bit weird, a bit tongue in cheek. It's a bit off the ball. I don't really get off the ball. Uh, like, I, I kind of, I definitely was guilty of taking myself probably too seriously at the time." But what they did, because I've obviously got inside knowledge and people in the music industry, was we went and we mined for the first time, which made me very uncomfortable. Because I was like, why can't we just play it live? This is what I've spent my entire life learning how to do. Yeah, yeah. It's probably harder to mine, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's really hard. <laughs> and, um, and so we, we do that, and I'm thinking, oh, this, this is all a bit weird. And then we get to the interview, and the first question is something along the lines of, so lads, you've um, you've just signed a record deal worth about one point two million. Is that right? And we were like, you can't ask that. That's not public information. That's mm. you know because you, at the same time you're running you're a band, but you, at this point now you're running a business. I mean you're not because you're three twenty year old lads who are always pissed. But someone somewhere is yeah. running a business on your <laughs> behalf. <laughs> um, it's like the worst so, apprentice task ever. Isn't yeah. it? <laughs> But so we kind of went, you can't say that. And we did the rest of the interview, which was very awkward and very confused, and then walked off the set and went, yeah, they can't use that. And so having asked us some stupid questions that they should have known would never have been allowed to air, they then lost their interview and got all uppity about it. And Mm. and went, oh, we're going to do this pathetic sketch where we call you all babies. And I kind of just thought, whatever. And, And then... I bumped into Alex saying, it was a bizarre night, we were at the Vodafone Music Awards, and Danny Dyer had just come in and uh, and uttered some brilliant Danny Dyerisms about my Sergio Tacchini top. Mm. <laughs> it's a strong look that time, it's a strong look, really strong <laughs> look, yeah, yeah, no, really strong. 
And uh, he was just a very bizarre. You're the mate. bollocks, mate. Yeah, You're the fucking exactly, bollocks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And um, it was just a, a very weird night. And then Alex Zane pops up, like walks up to us, like everything's fine, because I'm sure in the world that he existed in, you slag bands off all the time, and then you go do coke with them in Hoxton the next week. But we weren't from that world. And I was like, the "Fuck, are you doing in my dressing room? You called us fucking babies the other day, like." get the fuck out of here and don't think I'll shed a tear if you get hit by a bus on your way out. Mm. Which is, for a working class lad from where I came from, relatively polite. You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> and, um, and, yeah, so he, he took that badly and went on his show and said, I'm not going to play The Enemy on my show anymore, at which point his producer promptly told him he was. Um, and <laughs> he, had to, he had to retract it. <laughs> and he had to play The Enemy. Um, but then, years later... I bumped into him somewhere, I can't remember, and I went, look, it was a weird time, stakes were pretty high, and there were some silly questions, and I shouldn't have said what I said, I was a young lad, I was pissed, you know, Danny Dyer was there. <laughs> <laughs> a toxic mix. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we kind of just buried the hatchet and went, ah, oh, do you know what, it was fucking 2008 or whatever it was, they were weird times. Um, but none of it was... I mean, whatever was going on, there were... So around that time, around 08, 09, there were punches being thrown, but it's very hard to notice the punches from within the, the cushioned sphere of the, the bubble that you your band and your touring crew and everyone, that all the yes-men that are surrounding you anyway, you know, it's really hard to even feel those punches. When you feel them, it's actually a little bit later on mm. when... Everything's more sensitive and you're not the darling of the press anymore and you're working really hard for your living. You know, by the time we get to the third album, because we, we basically took, we were burned out and we took two years off, which in hindsight, well, you know what I was going to say? I was going to say in hindsight we shouldn't have done, but if we hadn't, the next album would have been horrific. If we'd have just gone straight back into a studio, we know someone's gone, all right, let's churn out another one. Mm. There wouldn't have been a fourth. So... I thought it was interesting that you worked with Joby Ford from the Bronx on that because it's. Um, I think when I listened, I listened back to that album uh, obviously this week, preparation. So I remember interviewing you at the time, and I think the way I viewed it at the time was you were doing something that was harder and punkier, perhaps because of the frustrations of the of the kind of years that you'd had out and feeling a bit burned out. Then when I listened back to it again this week, it it starts off quite punky, but then it it does kind of mellow and go in some other kind of different sort of directions. How do you look back on uh, sort of streets in the sky? How, how do you view it? And why did you work with Joby? Because I think that was a move that anyone really saw coming. So we, we'd taken these two years off and the, the global recession had really wrecked the UK by this point. Um, and I was living on a farm, not because I liked the countryside, not because I wanted to live on a farm, but because I'd bought a flat and I was now in negative equity, and I realised the only way that I was not going to lose all my money in this flat is if I managed somehow to blag a massive mortgage so that I could have a property where the gains on that property would offset the losses on the flat. It's the only way I was coming mm. out of it financially mm. unscathed. And so I ended up buying this fucking farm. But the benefits of the farm are that we build a rehearsal studio. I say we build a rehearsal. We throw everything away from in the dining room and put a PA in there um, and had some you know like some great writing sessions in there and it was just a really nice environment um, 
and but we you know we we also had two years off so by the time we get into the sessions for writing for that record we are completely out of money i mean like pretty much broke um and so the pressure's on and management are kind of saying you need to write you need to take no risks on this album because you can't financially afford to and you've been away for two years so you need to come back with something that isn't in the slightest risky it is just bread and butter straight down the line what the fans want and it it was posed to me that what the fans want is guitar music with big choruses a song like Saturday yeah exactly which is about as I don't mean this in a negative way necessarily but as paint by numbers enemy as I think it's you could get it's formulaic it's literally it is the most primary colours in big slap dashes players on it's, soccer am yeah it, it was that was in a way it was interesting because it was like okay can i write to a formula can i deliver to a brief and that came in useful later down the line when i ended up writing for film because you really have to write to a brief then i mean down to the, the second um but it was all right i know what i need to deliver here and the reason we went with Joby Ford is because the thinking was, this has to be guitars. Because if you leave it up to me, and we'll maybe talk about the projects I'm working on in a minute, you'll have a fucking orchestra with clarinets and brass and mm. fucking hurdy-gurdy, do you know what I mean? Like, you'll have everything. Every, mm. like, as big a palette as I can possibly have to paint with is, is what I'll use. And I had to shrink it down, and it was write an album for a three-piece band. And... The thinking with it being that this has to be guitars is that the Americans are better at recording guitars than us. They just are. Mm. Um, they never used to be. I mean, you know, used to have The Who and and we, we used to lead the way in, in sort of rock and roll. But over the years, the Americans got better at it. And so we needed an American. I think John had the connection to Joby. Um, we played him some songs. And Joby, most importantly, had a vision for it. He knew that what album he wanted to make which was good because I was writing to a brief so I couldn't really if I let myself loose with production like I say I'll go nuts so I had to just have a producer who knew what the, the space was that we could work within was prepared to work within it and was comfortable with that and so we we went and worked with him and we did it I think we did all of it over in the States um, we just went and stayed in LA it was actually quite pleasant um considering we had no money it didn't feel like it you know because we the we were working with cooking vinyl at that time so they put up the budget for the record what was it cooking vinyl yeah it was cooking vinyl um they put up the budget for it and so they put us up in reasonable accommodation in like in burbank in la which is a pretty nice place to stay and joby had his own studio which was really nice and relaxed and so we just hung about there and it's it pretty cool. There's like Joby's mariachi band would come in every now and then. The food was mm. fucking amazing. Mm. Like, it, it 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 was cool, and life was still, even though we were broke, it, it was still fun. Do you know what I mean? If anything, it was more like the first record. But in terms of what came out, and this is no criticism of Joby. Um, this is just the nature of what happens if you do a paint by numbers record. What came out was completely uninteresting to me because I knew that it was a product. And I was talking to you earlier before we started this about the, the balance, the scales, with art on the one hand and 
the need for it to sell and be a product on the other. And at that point in time, they were never more heavily weighted on the side of this is a product to the extent Mm. where there was Mm. almost no, there was nothing artistically in that album that challenged me whatsoever. It's very easy for someone who isn't in that position to tell a band it should always be artistic, right? When you're actually in that position, you're flats in negative equity, you've lost your deal with Warners and the wolves are at the door essentially. Yeah. But you have this this product that you can sell, and it did sell. It went top ten. Yeah. So even with two years out, there was still that audience and that hunger for it. And it it was also that record was also really when my relationship with the BBC sort of started to break down. Uh, the seeds of that were sown on the second record because the second record went to number two, and I remember who would it have been? Who was that female DJ that was doing with? I think it was Reggie Yates. And I can't, what's her name? Um, really famous. She does the show. Fern Cotton. Fern Cotton. They were doing the chart show at the time. And I remember they made the mistake of interviewing me live on Radio 1. Uh, on, the, on the chart show on the Sunday, it was like, oh, it's the number two spot and it's the enemy. And we'd been knocked off by Bob Dylan. That album would have been a number one, were it not for the fact that after we were already tied into our release date, Bob fucking Dylan went, yeah, I'm going to release an album on that date. Oh, oh you mm. cunt, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so it was it was considered a success, you know, and they were ringing me up going, oh, this is um, this is amazing, you're at number two, how do you feel? I went, I'll tell you how I feel. I feel disappointed at the rest of the crap that you're playing because they'd already really started to just play pop and uh, it wouldn't have been dubstep at the time, but whatever the, the next throwaway thing was that was starting to creep mm. in and... That generic pop sound that's basically engulfed all of music over the last exactly, sort of 10 years. It sounds like it's the same producer, the yep. same artist. Where all dance music became the same genre, and then all R&B became dance music, and it's all, yeah, everything just became homogenised, and I could see it happening, and it infuriated me, because it was, it, it was obvious what Radio 1 were about to become. They'd put out, the, the, the head of Radio 1 had put out a statement where he said that he thought that if you were whatever age it was, you were too old to be listening to Radio 1. And I just thought, you're never too old to listen to new music. You know, and I was I was kind of livid at them, and so I just had a go at them live on air. <laughs> um, and then, shockingly enough, two years later, when when we had Streets in the Sky, they weren't particularly supportive, and they created a whole bunch of hoops for us to jump through. And we encountered, for the first time, the model that they were using to decide who was playlisted on Radio 1 was all based on your social media stats. And we'd initially been quite slow to pick up social media. And so we didn't have a YouTube channel with a million followers. We didn't have a, a Facebook with a billion followers. And and I said straight away, well, this is ridiculous because if you're, the insert pop act name here, and you've got a million followers on YouTube, and then as a result, you get an A-list, uh, an A-playlist at Radio 1, you're probably going to get another million followers because you're now... A list on radio. Virtuous circle, isn't it? Yeah, it's very it's hard just to break a into. Loop. Yeah. And so I was like, so we'll never penetrate this. And it became obvious to me then that basically the BBC was broken, at which point I stopped paying my licence fee and I haven't done since. <laughs> <laughs> but, but yeah, it's. Um, so you're still political in your own way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in my own <laughs> selfish, grumpy old man yeah. way. <laughs> yeah. It was also around this time, uh, I think you were quite open about uh, your mental health. Uh, you know, we talked about some of the jabs that were made early in your career and that you appeared to have that kind of thick skin and roll with the punches but then you were quite and I was thinking about this actually in the context of kind of what's more broadly going on in in the world of kind of mental health at the moment you know when 
you live and die in these towns came out. I mean, it was a completely taboo yeah. subject, but still quite a, a brave thing to do. I think for a musician to come out and do that kind of openly was it was it a tough thing? Was it a tough decision to go public? Because you did go very public on Twitter with kind of an open letter laying it all out for people. How difficult was that to to kind of be open about? So by so the time when I started being open about that, we we now onto making the fourth album, which I suspected at the time we were making it would be our last. Um, and to be honest with you, I, I wasn't really dealing with the press. So I, I, I was still slightly doing as I, was, as I was told, and if there were big enough interviews, I'd go and do them. But I really had developed a dislike for the media in general at that point. Not just the music media, just the, the media in general. The, the standards of journalism were so low by this point, I, I kind of didn't have much time for it. But Time Out magazine, I can't remember what it is they said now, but they said something horrible about my appearance, which is, I mean, that's, that's always been the go-to for journalists because the thing is, is you can't knock away from here it's a fucking belting song whether you like it or not everyone in a band can go oh, fucking shit song but you still wish you wrote it because you'd have a bigger house and mm. it, it's it, it's one of those where the, the the way that they would attack you is, is just the lowest common denominator it's just school bullies it's just oh you look different and it's when you've endured that through school and then you've got into the adult world because um, I, I always say to, you know, you see young kids being bullied and I say, look, you, it's just school and kids are really mean. You get into the adult world, it matters less because you, you don't encounter as many petty-minded sort of mean people. But you kind of do. So, you know, I, I got out of school and got through, you know, oh, you're, you're really small, you've got a weird... And then had this success where it's like, oh, I'm being valued for my creative ability and no one really cares. But then there was always this sort of subcurrent of, oh, but you, you look different. Or, or there's always a dig at something that I couldn't control that was just genetics or, you know, whatever it was. And often quite throwaway and stuff as well. Yeah, it would exactly. be It'd be laced in there like a bit of poison. Yeah. Even if, maybe if they're talking positively about the music around totally. it. Totally, yeah. There's still with that bit of poison in there. I, I remember there was a year, the, the last time I ever dealt with NME, was probably third album, um, and Enemy basically begged us to go to the the Enemy Awards. I just said no, I'm not going, because by this point they'd printed enough. They'll you know they do a positive piece, but then the caption would be really insulting on underneath mm, the picture. And mm. um, I was just like, no, I've had enough of them. They're, they're just shit. I don't need them anymore. I worked on staff at the time. The reason for that was they begged everyone to go because no, no one, one was go. going. Right, no yeah. one was going. So just so you so, know, so they they begged me to go. And, and I was just going, I really don't want to fucking go. And eventually I went, all right, we'll go. And so we went and we did the bit that I hate, that's like the bullshit red carpet walk. And I used to hate having to do the interviews on the red yeah, carpet as well. So Complete waste awkward. of time. Yeah. And then I picked up the NMA the next month. And it was probably one of the last five people still reading it. And, <laughs> and there was a big photo of us on the red carpet going into the NMA Awards with Award for Worst Dressed. And I wouldn't have minded, but the coat that I was wearing was by a company that were fucking brilliant. It wasn't, I wasn't head-to-toe clad in Adidas. It was a company called One True Saxon who sourced really high-quality materials, all from the Midlands, and everything was produced in the Midlands instead of in China. And I was like, that's a really fucking good coat. And whoever wrote that hasn't got a fucking clue about clothing, because mm. otherwise they'd know how cool that coat was. 
And they've just done that. They've begged us to go so that they can slap us in the face. And they said, ah, you're done with you. And didn't deal with them after that. So I wasn't dealing with the media at all. And then I saw this timeout piece. And you sort of expect it from enemy, but you don't expect it of timeout London. And they called me a hobbit or something. And it's just, I was just triggered, basically. I was just like, because that's... That, in modern parlance, yeah. That word has, has popped up so often throughout the 10 years of being in the music industry. I'm not a fucking hobbit. I don't, like, I've not watched Lord of the Rings because of that word and how often that's cropped up in in media about me because mm. I've got no mm. interest in watching anything with the word hobbit in there because I cringe when I hear it because it's only ever been used as mm. an insult to me. So, But that popped up and I thought, you know what? Your time out London, I bet I could get someone sacked because you're supposed to be better than that there. You, you can't get people sacked at Enemy for that. You know if you if Enemy called you a hobbit and you wrote a letter of complaint to them, the whole office would probably just sit around laughing and publish a letter of complaint. Mm. But To be fair, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I'd do if I was <laughs> the editor at Enemy because what brilliant material. But we time out London, I thought, no, you're supposed to be really professional, grown-up journalists. I'm going to fucking have you. And I thought, I'm not going to give an interview because I don't want anyone else to have an angle on this. This is my angle. And this is, you're unprofessional, and this is lazy journalism, and it's bullying. And I would have done that with a, with a no, without the context of me having any mental health issues. I would have still done that and held them to account. But it probably wouldn't have had the gravitas that it had. With the, the two added things of my honesty, of holding up my hands and saying, I've done this before. I've said Faris has got shit hair from the horrors. He can't help what his hair's like, and it's not actually that shit. But... I've been guilty of it. But that's different. That, that, for me, that's a very different sort of comment where he deliberately has a bird's nest kind of haircut yeah. than something that is but it, targeted like, something like your height, for example, that no one can help. I still at. wasn't proud of it. And I, I thought I, I'll, I'll leave myself open to criticism or I'll, I'll devalue the, the, the gravitas of this if I don't point out that I've been guilty of similar things, you know, that, that I've, I've thrown stones as well, but that at some point I grew up and became aware that you don't do that and I regretted doing it and I stopped doing it if you're writing for Time Out London grow the fuck up because if I've managed to do it with my life of drinking whiskey on the road being in a fucking rock and roll band then you should definitely have learned to do it while you're writing for Time Out London um, and so yeah, I, I put that piece out there and I was really honest and I said look I've done this but you, you never know who's on the end of it and you don't know what their particular personal issues are you could fucking kill someone. You know what I mean? If you're harsh enough and you catch someone on the wrong day, mm. you could kill someone. And I know that's an extreme view, but I also, you know, the reality is there were, I remember, I remember reading an NME piece on my birthday once and being really close to tears and it ruined my birthday and it's, it's totally unnecessary. And you can say, oh, people should have thicker skins. And I'm an advocate of that. I, I, I really believe in free speech. But I also think that free speech is a it gives you great power because you can say anything, and with great power comes responsibility. Responsibility is massively attached to that. Yeah. Exactly, and and you know if you're a responsible adult who wants to be treated with respect and employed by people like Time Out London, then you know you need to you need to wield that responsibility maturely and 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 carefully. And it wasn't just them. I think Vice picked up on the Time Out London bit and basically doubled down on it. Um, but I actually I got a really a really nice apology from the editor at Vice, at Vice at the time, and you know they kind of said you know look this 
Because the, the bit that got me about both of those pieces is neither journalist put their name on the bottom of it. And it's like you're completely anonymously just bullying someone. And mm. That's even and worse. It's, yeah, it's just, it's just a spineless attack. I'm a much more chill out person now, but yeah, I mean, my response was always, tell me who the fuck that is so I can go to the offices and we'll see if they'll say it to my face. Which they probably would because I'm tiny, but I'd probably still have a scrap with them because yeah. I was an idiot. But, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think, um, yeah, it just for me it was just, this is the final straw and it's on what's possibly going to be the final album of her making. It's been fucking years, nearly a decade since I've taken a pop shot at anyone. Can we all grow the fuck up now? And it really, for me, highlighted how immature the music industry was and how how other industries had evolved. And don't get me wrong, I think you can go too far. I think that there is some legislation and political correctness that's starting to creep into society now that is batshit mental. But I think that it's not even about politics for me it's just about common decency and, and respect for your fellow man and it, it's lacking or at the time I was involved in the music industry because I'm now very much I operate on the fringes of it um, it was it was just a fucking immature spiteful pathetic place to be mm. and I just thought someone should bring attention to this and all credit to Music Week God love them um, just published they just took the, the sort of the open letter that I've written and just published it in Music Week and, and kind of went we could all learn from this mm. um, the time you're recording kind of your final album you say that in your heart of hearts you kind of know it's your final album yeah I think and I wonder if you share this view or I bet you don't look at your albums in this way to be fair but for me that is the most complete album you did other than We'll Live and Die in These Towns probably because yeah. the pressure was actually off to a degree it's the second best one we made definitely and most people haven't even heard it because by that point there was no press coverage really there was no radio um the, there were a lot of promises from management that you know oh no this is a i mean we knew it was a great album while we were making it but i also knew no one was going to hear it and i decided it doesn't matter let's just it's a swan song you know i thought I was so disillusioned with the industry, I thought there's no chance I'll ever make a solo record, so this is it, this is the last record I'm making. And the production on it is fantastic, and the songwriting I was able to take my time with, and some of those songs have been five years in the works, you know, they're songs where they hadn't been right for the label that we were working with at the time, but, um, you, you know, they they developed, and some of them are really, like, heartfelt, like, What's a Boy to Do was written at one of the darkest times of my life. That wasn't written for an album, that was written to keep me sane. It's the, therapy. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Which is the exact reason that I was writing songs on the first album. It was to deal with life. You know, it was back to my Tuesday nights of this is how at the end of the week I just decompress and get all the emotion in me out. And so, yeah, most of that album was was just me back to writing songs the way I liked. And the production really, it didn't, doesn't sound particularly like the enemy, but it really moved it forward. And we went out and played it live and that was a new challenge because there were a lot of elements there that, that it was like, okay, we need to learn how to do this live and it's tricky. And uh, I loved that album because it, it challenged me again artistically and, and professionally. It was, uh, it's one of my favourite things we've done. And then in terms of, you know, you, you do your kind of final tour and your final gigs. Am I right in thinking that the very final enemy gig you proposed to your girlfriend or one of the final gigs? Yeah. So that's, I mean, if you're going to make a film about the band, that's a pretty good ending scene, right? 
yeah, but that's not why I did it. It wasn't for the for the drama. It was for very practical reasons. <laughs> <laughs> the practical reasons of wanting to marry your girlfriend, probably. But that, right? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we'd met on that spot, on that stage. Um, my, my now wife, Kate, is a professional DJ. And we were playing our last gig in the Empire, which is a music venue in Coventry that I opened um, with some other... Um, some of the guys in Coventry and um, and over the course of our relationship Kate had mentioned that her dream proposal would be um, sort of a she, lo- she loved the whole big public proposals and, and I think for some girls that's yeah most women hate that but I knew Kate would would love that sort of proposal and at this time I'm thinking once these last few gigs are over I'm out I, I might not even stay in this country. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm done with music because it's been a roller coaster and there's been some ups and downs. But I just want some more stability in my life. So I think I need to do something more stable. And uh, I realised this was going to be my last opportunity to propose to Kate in the way that she would love. And I also realised that it was kind of the gig was going to form very close to the anniversary of when we first met. Mm-hmm. and that I would be standing on the spot where we both first met. And I was like, well, this is kind of, it's kind of it. You're not going to get the chance yeah. to do that again, no, are you? It was either do this now, and, and I knew I wanted to spend the rest of my life with her, but we're also, me and Kate are weird. We, neither of us, neither, neither of us are religious, so marriage for us is literally, when I kill myself on around Donington GP circuit in a car doing something stupid, or when she does, I would like the the government to know legally that we cared about each other so that the stuff goes to the right place. Yeah, it's <laughs> a very practical way of looking at and, it. But and, yeah. and also, if you're ever making a complaint in a hotel, it carries much more weight if you say, my wife is up there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, you know, our reasons for getting married were romantic, but also, you, you know, it, 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 it was... It wasn't a case of, oh, but I've got to wait for the perfect time. That was the perfect time, and it was going to pass, and it would probably never have come up again, or at least at that point I thought, I'll never be on stage again, so I'll never get the opportunity to do this the way she wants again. And I did it, and thank fuck she said yes. And, mm. um, yeah, I mean, that would have been the, the worst ending of the film <laughs> if she have said, uh, yeah, I'm not sure, actually. I mean, then, then maybe you do stay in the band and write an album well, like that. I mean. Liam and Andy said to me, what, what if she says no? And I was like, lads, if she says no... We're in a room full of a thousand people. There's plenty of girls in that room. <laughs> <laughs> I'll bring up on stage. I'll marry one of them. <laughs> <laughs> and then just to kind of bring things kind of back sort of full circle, you know, last year, uh, you know, you started playing some solo gigs, acoustic gigs, and playing uh, mainly, I think, tracks from uh, We'll Live and Die in These Towns. And also, you've created a musical out of We'll Live and Die in These Towns. I haven't seen yet. I want to see. It's only been in Coventry as far as I'm aware up to now. I hope you're going to bring it to London or tour it at, at some point. Um, yeah, I don't know if it will happen because taking musicals out of provincial towns and taking them to London is so expensive. It's insane. It, it you know it makes recording an album financially look like nipping into Greg's. It's it's a crazy amount of money. So I I don't know. I don't think frankly I don't think it'll end up in London, but it is. I think going to come back to the Belgrade Theatre in Coventry for another run, which would be great because it's one of the one of the most fun things I've done. Um, but yeah, I I decided 
it was when it, we, we had the 10 years, the 10 year anniversary with Living Dying These Towns, I decided I was going to go out and play some, or just play the first album basically and just sing it with everyone again. I had no idea what the demand would be, so I think we put on maybe six gigs or something. And I was really cautious about the venue sizes and said, you know, I don't know, I don't know how this will go, but let's put it on. I want to go out and sing the songs. Just me and a, a guitar, which ended up me and my mate Gaz playing bass and and um, Jim and Howard um, playing keys for me. And it worked really well. And the gigs sold out stupendously quickly and I realised there was demand for it. And the first few gigs, and I was really surprised that I enjoyed it. Because for years, for me, the music industry had been nothing but stress. And I couldn't wait to get out of it. And I went and did these gigs, and everything was really simple and easy. And there was no press involved whatsoever, because I didn't need any press, because this tour's just sold out. So I didn't speak to anyone, said no to every interview request, and apart from people at university papers, because I figured they could do with a break, so I, I always spoke to them. And... Uh, and we went and did it and it was great fun and I loved doing it so much we just kept it rolling and I ended up uh, selling out Shepherd's Bush Empire doing an acoustic show which mm. I found bizarre because mm. if you'd have said to the enemy a year or whatever it was before you know we're, we're going to do a sellout show in Shepherd's Bush Empire we'd have been struggling for that you know at that point and yet it's almost like the band going reminded everyone of how fragile bands are and mm. it takes them in a way people want it more exactly and and but it's I've now got this like this more than ever this beautiful relationship with my fans where they know how much I appreciate them and I know how much they appreciate me and it's just it's like a family and I, like the gigs are like going to a family reunion so yeah and, and, and that and then the, the musical came about around the same time uh, a really talented writer called Jeff Thompson um who had always apparently had always been a fan of the enemy he used to work out I Google Jeff Thompson from Coventry because I cannot even on like a long form pub, podcast I can't tell you enough about Jeff's life he's one of the most extraordinary people I've met but he basically he decided he was going to write a musical and he wrote it and uh, I was asked to be musical director on it which I jumped at because it was an artistic challenge there was not really much money in it so it, it didn't feel like a job it just felt like an artistic challenge and um, yeah it's one of the most fun things I've ever done working with some of the most talented people I've ever met mm. and it went down really well and I think it broke some records at the theatre and hopefully it'll come back We've already hinted in this interview that there's something else you're looking at for next year I know you're looking at maybe doing another solo you do some more solo gigs in November I think Scotland and Yeah that's, that's partly to fund the the project that will hopefully come to fruition in 2020. So I've written an album um, which um, in the beginnings of recording, we, we've got a lot of the tracking done. Next week we're going in putting guide vocals down and, and in February we're going to go in and start putting string section bits down. And um, I've hinted very briefly on Instagram once last year, probably about this time last year, the gist of the project. Um, but uh, it's, it's a big one to explain and it's hard to give you a brief synopsis. But in 1979, a band called XTC wrote a song called Making Plans for Nigel. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, One of the classic kind of uh, post-punk, kind of punk-funk bands, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and the the gist of the song... So in 1979, Britain kind of knew that the British steel industry was going to be gone very soon and that it had no future. The, the beautiful sort of irony in the lyrics is that with this knowledge, XTC wrote a song about a lad called Nigel from his mum and dad's perspective whose future was as good as sealed. It was, his future was in British steel. You know, they kind of had his, his life and his career path mapped out for him, job for life, those times. Yeah, yeah. And it marked a changing of the the way that Britain was we, when we used to manufacture stuff. And so in 2009, when I wrote Be Somebody, it references Nigel. My thinking in 2009 was, what if XTC were writing this song about the same guy now? What would his mum and dad be thinking his future is? Um, the lyrics in Beats and Body are, Nigel got a job in the city, works in the department store, slogging his guts out all through the week, looking forward to the weekend score, which is how our generation was living. You know, we, we'd gone from manufacturing jobs and exporting as a nation to working in the sales and service industry and and not really having an investment in society and just living for the weekend. And, and so that was my take in 2009. And in, in 2019... Um, or the end of 2018 I had a number of objectives so my whole career has been writing songs in primary colours it's, it's red, green and blue paint your chorus make it as big as possible make the song 2 minutes 30 long and etc mm. and I, I love classical music but I also have grown to really really respect the songwriters of the 60s like Burt Bacharach because all of that writing is based in jazz it's adapted jazz standards which they used to build pop songs that when you listen to them you can just sing you sing the top line to it and it's like the most catchy song ever and if you sit down to play it as a musician your brain is immediately fried because it doesn't use any of the chords you expect Mm. and it's really hard to play and this was a musical tradition that was carried right up to maybe Bowie and Elton John, maybe Mercury, who still understood this language of making something that's palatable to to ears that are not you know not refined ears to, to the layman, but that technically is very tricky. And so I wanted to write some songs like that because it's it's it was an artistic challenge having only ever used a primary colour palette to go, well, let's expand that a bit and let's not use any of those primary colours and let's try and write music using these adaptions of jazz standards. So I started working on that. And if you're going to write an album, you need a subject matter. And I don't know at what point it was, but I just sort of fell back on to Nigel and thought, I wonder what he's up to now. And at the time I was working on the musical and I just watched Jeff Thompson very just beautifully take an album, We'll Live and Die in These Towns, which didn't have a coherent storyline, but he managed to pull one out of it. And I thought, I wonder if you can do it the other way around. I wonder if you can write a story and then turn that into an album. And so I started thinking more and more about Nigel, who he was, what he did now, where he lived. Um, 
I was built up this picture of a character in my mind, and he's he's about my age. He's he's been married for seven years, and I thought, well, who's he married to? And I thought, well, it'd be lovely to reference some of the characters from we Live and Die in These Towns. So, Shelley from Techno Dancephobic, um, who back in the day was a, a lesbian banging on the back seat with Becky. Mm. Um, I thought, well, maybe him and Shell got together and maybe that was the local girl in Be Somebody. And so started to build this family unit or they probably got a couple of kids. Were the kids planned? Probably not. Most people's aren't. Mm. So he's, you know, he's probably, he's, he's, it's forced him to have a career now. Whatever he was planning on doing, he's probably a career man now. So what is he? Maybe a PE teacher because that's, he's got a little bit of sort of passion in it but it's ultimately a steady job and and uh and so i built up this picture but you need a story and you know talking to jeff and understanding how story arcs work um it needs to go somewhere and things need to happen and so basically nigel's seven years into this marriage and he's got kids and he makes a mistake and and strays and um and basically the album, without giving it away, that you know, there, there are consequences to that which are dire and which have a knock-on effect. And we, we meet his whole family. We meet his mum and dad, Bob and Sue, which is a reference to the film Bob, Sue and Rita 2, which I love, which mm. in my mind while I'm seeing this story, it, it's painted like Bob, Sue and Rita 2. I don't know why, it's sort of just in that time. That, that scene where they're shouting out the windows, I've got that springs yeah. to mind from that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> send her up whatever road what, what road was it um, there was a road famous for prostitutes which is what that reference is I actually mm. went and saw that um, the play the, um, Bob Soon Rita 2 went and saw it in Manchester last year um, but yeah it, it, so you meet his mum and dad and, and they're involved in the whole story and and the kids and, it, and so I had this story and then I started discussing with my best friend Gaz and Gaz had been out on the road for a couple of years playing bass with me now about how we were going to execute it. And I said, well, I've got this plan for the chords. I know what I want to do musically in the palette and I want to use as many instruments as possible because I've, in, in the time that's passed the last few years, I've done a few sort of film soundtracks and I know the, the power of brass and strings now and being able to use those mm. effectively mm. and other orchestral instruments. And, but I also, you know, at its core, I want it to be one voice, you know, it, it's... It, it, it needs that to tie it all together. So I, I, I sort of I said, you know, but it needs to be more than that. It, that on its own is an incomplete concept for me. And so we started essentially mood boards and came up with a mood board that encapsulates Britishness because we're weirdos, the British, mm. especially about sex we're so prudish we literally get on a train and go under the sea to to france and europe and it's a completely different landscape where you fly to america and dating for them over there means you're shagging a whole bunch of different people and when you stop dating is when you you start seeing someone properly and it's we've got this really weird sort of prudishness of almost victorian you know we're, we're fucking we're all mental we're all perverts but it's all sort of under the table mm, mm. and I love that about Britishness because um, it's so unique and so we started then going through 
language and words that only the British use and, and our relationship with with Europe, which is timely. Um, but also yeah, you've got to be careful this isn't called a Brexit album. Yeah, no, it's, it's not. But the, the, the I mean, there's, there's some French on it. Um, but it's... And I, and I said, you know, the other thing that I want to do is every Enemy album, there's not a single swear word on any Enemy album. People think of us as these aggro lads. It's not a single swear word on any of it because mm. it, it had to be commercial. And it's quite frustrating because swearing, for me, and I think this is a British thing as well, is a, a really useful part of the British language. It can be really emotive and... Visceral. Yeah. And so I said, I want this album to be full of profanity and sexually graphic but not in you know not in the way Hollywood paints sex I'm talking about fingering next to service stations <laughs> and real sex that happens and and so we we set about this project and it's all about Nigel it's called the Chronicles of Nigel and we're we're well into the studio work now we're about to enter the next phase of it and as we do we're going to crowdfund a portion of it because the more money we can raise to fund it, the, the better we can make it in terms of string sections and production and mixes. Um, and it's just a, it's a fucking really, really challenging. It's been so hard. I've never worked so hard. It's been a year mm. so mm. far to get to the point where we're now going into the studio and we're happy that everything's right and you know there's not a single word on the album that hasn't been agonised over. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's been already, before it's even finished, the most rewarding project. And it sounds nothing like a Tom Clark album should sound. In your head, when you think, oh, it's Tom Clark from the anime, how should it sound? Well, there's a track on there that sounds like Cross Between the Bee Gees and Gloria Gaynor. There's a track on there that sounds like uh, a, a Marikomi sort of Western soundtrack. There's a track on there that's an accordion and a glockenspiel. Um, and and it's all based around these evolutions of jazz standards. It doesn't sound anything like it should. I mean, I, I can't I can't wait to hear this, and I feel like to kind of wrap things up. I mean, you know, we've done the kind of past, present, future, now very much the future. Fans, I suppose, would want to know if you ever think there'd be a point where the enemy would do something together again. The songs still mean a lot to people. Absence makes the heart kind of grow fonder for bands. As I think you mentioned earlier. Do you think it's something that would ever get returned to? Yeah, uh, uh, the short answer is yes, but not for money and not for the sake of it, not because we hit some anniversary. It will just be when the three of us land in a room together and we're all in the mood to do it and we want to do it. And it, it won't be about the right timing or, you know, the music industry thinks it's a, it's a great idea. It will just be for the same reason that the three of us walked in that rehearsal room on the Tuesday night, one day we'll walk out onto a stage again and, and play the same songs. Then if we'll ever write another album, because to be quite honest, it's such a limited palette to work with, writing for the enemy. And I'm not sure Liam and Andy would have the same interest that I do in using an extended palette um, and Andy's got his own band that he's he's writing songs that he he loves and that, that autopilot. Yeah. Yeah. And and for me, I kind of I've done a lot of work since the enemy, be it film soundtracks or or Nigel or working out acoustic versions of the entire first album. 
bit of ghostwriting attract as well. I've seen you talk, talked about that. A little bit, but I hate doing that. I hate writing by committee. I'm, I'm all for dictatorships. Um, <laughs> it, it just works better. There's, there's a, a purity of concept when one person sees it through and has control from start to finish that you don't get when you, you have multiple writers, I think. But I can see the enemy on stage again playing the enemy songs. But I also feel very much like the enemy is a thing, in, creatively speaking, that happened. And we might get back together and celebrate that it happened, the three of us. But at the moment, at least, and everything is liable to change, but at the moment I'm really enjoying writing for myself and, and not having any sort of... any any barriers or any limitations to that and being able to do whatever I like we've come full circle there and a great kind of cliffhanger to finish on uh, thanks for speaking to us Tom and being so open and being you know, being so kind of candid about things you've spoken about and yeah can't wait to hear the new album potentially see the, the musical again and maybe you know we see the enemy on stage again but thanks a lot it's been a pleasure and I guess we'll have a chat in another 10 years <laughs> <laughs> cheers Tom cheers so this interview came after the Reverend and the Makers one, right? So there's only been a couple of weeks between the time when you interviewed John from Reverend and the Makers and uh, now you've interviewed Tom from The Enemy. And to me, they seem to follow a, a really nice theme, which is they both seem really comfortable to open up and talk about something that's been really potentially bothering them um, about their past. And it's it seems like there's, you know, with all the talk about mental health going on now, you know, it was Mental Health Awareness Week a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's Stress Awareness Day coming up in November. Mm. Um, there's a lot of talk around mental health in, in all industries, but in particular the music industry. And I really feel like now's a good time for, for artists and bands to be having these discussions and turning to, to kind of turning it around on its head and thinking, you know, it's okay to talk about this maybe I don't have to go and do some of the things that I went and did before, such as probably taking a lot of drugs and drinking a lot of alcohol. That's not really the way to help people. Um, so I really like the fact that he talked so honestly about that. Um, and I think you did a really good job in talking to him uh, around that fact as well. Um, I mean, to be honest, that, that we didn't, I didn't go in with the, you know, the agreement of this is the only thing we're going to talk about, but I did spend a bit of time with him before the interview saying, you know, I do want to kind of this to be kind of warts and all and talk about all the things that have gone on in your career. And it's interesting as well that beforehand he mentioned how when uh, we pitched the idea of him coming on the podcast, he had actually listened to the John McClure interview and he was struck by not just, I think, some of the things John said and, and maybe some of the things he agrees on. And to be fair, John and Tom uh, have kind of known each other for years. You know, then I wouldn't say they're like best mates, but they came through at a similar time. They were on the same festival bills. You know, I know that they, to a degree, sort of uh, know each other. And I, and I think one of the big things that you know Tom and I talked about there was that you know back in maybe five five years ago, say, you weren't able to open up about these things. You know, he was really brave to put that letter on Twitter a few years back where he talked about his mental health. But that was the point at the time. It was seen as quite brave because not many artists would do that. Whereas now. There's definitely that culture of, of openness that people feel like they can, um, you know, they can open up on these things and, and talk to their fans about about um, about what's on their mind. I think that's the other thing that Tom appreciated was that a podcast like this, where you can talk long form, is very different to when you go and speak to a journalist who can potentially kind of twist what you say and, and edit 
um, wholesale bits out. Obviously, in podcasts, you can edit bits out. I think it, he, he saw it as the right kind of medium for him to talk about this stuff. Yeah, and I think that is becoming more and more true, isn't it? I think podcasts are an avenue for people to come on and, and kind of talk candidly about things like that. So I actually think I'd like to do more of these uh, sorts of interviews um, and not just talking about, you know, what's going on now, what new, new releases we've got coming up, all that kind of stuff. Like, the, the point of us doing this podcast in the first place, I we've always talked about the fact that um, kind of I'm the bit of a, the emotive one, the emotional one. I love I love when people talk about this kind of stuff because I think it's really good and really interesting for the fans as well to connect with the band and the artist on a, a bit of a deeper level. Did you see James Blake's comments earlier this year about kind of the effect that touring can have on bands' mental health and whether this is almost, he didn't say this, but the way I'm reading between the lines is there's potentially a bit of a ticking time bomb that's a very kind of government phrase for these for these kind of health sort of things. But, you know, if you think about the number of bands that go on tour and kind of the weird lifestyle that's there, where they're actually, um, it's a little bit like in, in football, uh, I almost liken it to, where there's a lot of talk now about heading the ball and whether that's causing kind of brain injuries later in life for people. But people are only starting to realise it now, where they're actually, this thing around being a touring musician, years down the line musicians are realising, well, actually that's maybe what's played a part in kind of the state of my mental health. Well, definitely, and, and this is where I think we, the hologram touring might come in handy. Something needs to change, I think. You know, the fact that the music industry model changed from selling records because of, of um, inventions that are like the internet, for example, <laughs> that big thing, called, that little thing no, called I've the internet. That. Yeah, yeah, where, where can I find it? Um, <laughs> we're going to find it everywhere, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, that changed, uh, so people needed to go back on tour again but you know the rise of mental health is kind of having a massive impact on artists how do we then change to to make that all better so the hologram one I'm still on this one I still think this is I actually saw something the other day on a trend forecast they're talking about hologram conferences so it's a thing and it's really happening so I think that's probably a good um, one good solution for this anyway I guess it would be good to see a bit of a career renaissance for, for Tom Clark and potentially even kind of finally the enemy because you know although yes I'm kind of a fan of the music and, and always uh, always thought they were great lads kind of back in the day when they were they were coming through you know I think for me they're almost like a cautionary tale of what can happen in the music industry if you get too much too soon not every band you only get one Arctic Monkeys every generation, a band that come in and have a number one album and then a number one single and the next album goes to number one. I mean, that isn't the usual. You know, the enemy, and obviously you'll have heard this in the interview, where I put it to him that, you know, how do you follow an album that goes multi-platinum, goes to number one? The only way really for most bands, for 99% of bands, is down. You know, and he, he's honest that the second album was rushed and that he wasn't happy with it. And, you know, these in, in kind of the music industry of the last 10 years, especially if you're a guitar band, if you sort of mess up an album or you don't put out the album that you think is right, uh, your career can That's quickly go south. Could you know, be the end. And it, obviously they had four albums and it wasn't like they kind of um, split immediately. But, you know, listening to what he, he said there, you know, the seeds were sown really in when the label wanted them to rush a second album out and then they had to take a break after that because they were completely unhappy. Uh, and then obviously came back with a fourth album, but the whole kind of music industry had moved on, the, the, their fans had moved on. Uh, but interesting also that as a solo artist, he's getting bigger crowds now than when he was kind of in the closing days of The Enemy, which says to me that people still want to hear those songs. Oh, definitely. I think those kind of bands, there's, there's definitely a nostalgic angle to that as well, isn't it? It was de definitely a, a time and a place for a lot of people, and um, I don't think that they'll let that go very easily. But yeah, I guess we'll draw it to a close. It's been a long listen, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening. If you've listened all the way through, well done. Um, and we'd love to hear your thoughts on, on all of this as well. Anything we've talked about in this episode, um, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is demotapespod at gmail.com. We're also on Instagram and Twitter at demotapespod. 
Um, and our personal ones, if you want to get in touch with us or see what we're up to in our lives, Rick is on Twitter. Rick underscore J underscore Martin. And I can't promise it's all about you know music. There's a bit of football in there. There might even be the odd reference to WWE, but we won't talk about that. That's a whole new subject. And mine on, on Instagram is I am Sarah Jane Camp. Uh, also, to ask, if you do listen on iTunes, please do give us a five-star rating as it really does help us. But yeah, I guess uh, until next time, thanks for listening and we'll see you on the next episode. See ya.